So we're jumping back into our Ephesians series. And uh, we started this year looking at the book of Ephesians and this idea of our identity as the people of God. And who are we as the people of God? And we've looked at the book of Ephesians as this blueprint that we can use to understand what it means to be the people of God in our day. So we started off in September looking at chapter 1 where, where Paul says you're called, you're chosen, you're adopted. We have this great, this great inheritance that we've received from God by virtue of being called to be his people. And in, now we're moving ahead into chapter 2. And when we were looking at this, and I was talking with Brian Carney, we were kind of planning the preaching through the Ephesians series through the course of the year. I had read the book over a number of times in the summer. I had, I had broken it down. I had done outlines of it. And I was talking with Brian. I said, Brian, I said, I get it. I understand what Paul is saying. And I understand really well chapter 1 of what it means to be called and chosen and adopted. I understand chapters 3 and 4 and what it means then to go out and live that way of life, to live a life worthy of the vocation where we've been called. And all of the practicalities of chapter 5 and chapter 6. I understand all of that, but I don't quite get what Paul is doing in chapter 2. Why does Paul start where he starts in chapter 1 by saying you're adopted, you're chosen, you're, you're called, and then he goes in chapter 2 and he says, but remember where you came from. Remember where you were. And so there's a, like this regression that happens in chapter 2 where he takes them away from this kind of this glorious presence and takes them back to the past and says, here, remember, remember who you were? And Brian, I thought, had a great answer, as he usually does. And Brian said, Kev, he said, if you look at the nation Israel, if you look at, at the story of Israel, their history was so important. It was always part of their present and pointed to their future. And that helped me look at chapter 2 and begin to really kind of digest it a little different. So we're going to look today at the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians and then talk about what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you can check it out. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I want to read this from the, um, the New Revised Standard Version, and I'll tell you why I chose this in a couple of seconds. So let's go. It says this. You were dead through the, through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh. Thanks. Following the desires of flesh and senses that we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. When I read this passage, I find that it's kind of a, a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing. 
Paul starts off by talking about, you know, where we were and all the things that were wrong. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about the good things. And depending on who you are and how you read it, you, you might kind of land on one side or on the other of what Paul is trying to say. And that's a little bit what we're going to be unpacking and talking about today. When you hear a passage like this or read it, what do you think about? What are you drawn to? Does your heart go to what you were and perhaps what you are in terms of some of the things that are going on in our lives even now? Or does it go to what God has said about us? And which is the place where, where we kind of, kind of live? And I'm, I'm going to be honest, this may not be the same struggle for everybody in this room. Some of us may already, you know, kind of really be landed on that place of, of living out of a position of grace, and we, might, we really get that, and that's great. But others might be a little bit more like me, where you're still very much aware of all the garbage in your life, and you're kind of going, man, oh man, how could God possibly say something like that about a person like me? And so if you're like me today, this is really good news. This message is really good news, but it's also going to be really challenging news. You see, we can look at a passage like this of what Paul says to the Ephesians and what he says then to all of us by the Spirit, and we can, you know, we can see our past, or we can see our present, or we can see our future, depending on how we, we look at it. So let's break it down. Here's Paul's proposition. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, so before you were dead in your trespasses, you were following the ruler of this world, you were fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and you were children deserving of wrath. And some of us may identify with that and say, I'm still that. I wish I wasn't. I, f I feel like I ought not to be. But if I think about you know, what happened in my life last night or yesterday or last week or the week before, that still kind of describes me and I even still feel like I'm under God's wrath. I know cognitively, I know mentally I'm not. I know I'm forgiven. I know there's grace. But I live and feel like I'm over here. That I'm under God's judgment because I know what I'm like. And then Paul says, yeah, but here's the good news. Here's the after. He says, here's what God has done. He's made us alive with Christ. He's raised us with Christ. And he's seated us in heaven with Christ. Now here's the thing. There's an incredible depth in what Paul has just written. That's, that's worth struggling with and worth dwelling upon because it doesn't come to us easily, but it is so profound, it is so significant. I haven't got time to unpack all of that today. We'll talk a little bit about it as we go. But to be made alive with Christ, this is the new birth. This is to be born from again, this is, or to be born from above. This is what it means to be born again. And if you are, you are in Christ, if you are with Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new man, a new woman. You are a new person. You are a new creation. But he goes on. You're raised with Christ. Now we get to dwell on this for just a second because here is where it begins to get difficult to grasp. 
Because what he's saying here is if you and I are raised with Christ, we have already conquered death. We have already conquered death. Think about that for a second. To be raised with Christ is to be beyond death. Because Christ is raised. Christ is risen. Christ is alive. Christ died and rose again, and to be with Christ is to be beyond death. Death is a transition from here to there, and nothing more. And nothing more. The death of the body has no impact on the soul. Because the soul is alive with Christ already. How many of us live in fear of death? I grew up with death. I told you that. My mom died when I was 16. Death has kind of been an an unpopular companion of mine my whole life. And I am grateful for the truth. You know, this is not one that I really stagger at. I know I'm going to die someday. I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I certainly don't worry about it. Because I believe that because of Christ, it's a passageway. And nothing more. So I'm, a, I'm kind of okay with this one. But here's the next one. And this gets us into even deeper water. That we are seated in heaven with Christ. This speaks to the spiritual authority and power that each one of us as believers in Christ has now. Has now. You see, the Greek tenses of these verbs is the, the tense that implies that, that God has done something in the past which has ongoing, continuous, present effect. So what Christ has done in the past, when you and I are united with Christ, the effect of what he's done is happening right now in our very lives. And you and I are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now if we are with him which means we share in his authority and his power. Now that's pretty staggering when we think about it. Martin Luther said this, and I'm going to quote from Martin Luther in a second. There's a great article that Martin Luther wrote in 1520 called Christian Freedom, the Freedom of the Christian. And I'm going to get it, I'll get it reprinted and I'll make it available for anybody who wants to read the whole thing. But he talks about, he says this. He says, everything... Everything that is created is subject to the believer in Christ. Think about that for a second. Everything, everything that is created is subject to the believer that is in Christ. That's what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms now. Now, before we go further, what makes this possible? What makes this possible? This, why is this such a great verse? What makes this possible? And the reason I cho- chose the, uh, rev- the New Revised Standard Version is, uh, in many ways, I think it's closest to the original Greek and what the Greek portrays. And the New International Version and others kind of lose the effect of it because he talks about, in, in, uh, in this verse in chapter 3, he says, all of us once lived among them, right? We followed the passions of our flesh, Blah, blah, blah. We were like everyone else. Verse 4 begins this way. But God. 
but God. So we were over here. We were over here living over here with all of the mess of our lives. But then God did something. We did nothing. It didn't start with us. We did nothing to deserve this or merit it or bring it upon ourselves. We were over here, children of God's wrath, just like everybody else, until God did something. But God. And then it tells us that God is merciful and loving and compassionate. And then twice in this passage he says that he did it by grace. By grace. So the verses in this chapter that I think really jump out are, but God, by grace, by grace. Because Paul wants us to understand that God has done something so astounding, so amazing, so beyond our comprehension. We did nothing to deserve it. We can do nothing to merit it. We can do nothing to receive it of ourselves. He did it as a gift by grace, which you and I simply have to receive. That's what he's saying here. By grace, undeserved, unmerited pardon. Of course we didn't deserve it. We were children of his wrath until he united us with Christ. And then once being united with Christ, all of these attributes that Paul describes become ours. But here's the big question. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? And here's where we have to swim in the deep water for a bit. And here's where Martin Luther steps in to help us out. You see, if you're like me, you hear it, you understand it, you accept it, but it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. Could it really be true? Could this really be what is true? All around, I see the effects. You know, I still see my sin. I still see the brokenness in my life. I still, still see all the, the dumb and stupid stuff I do think and say. In the world around me, I still see the pettiness. I still see all of the injustice. I still see all of the garbage. I pray for people to be healed. They're not healed. All of that works against me believing this. All of that works against me being able to say, I believe but I'm learning to get past that. I am learning to get beyond that. I am learning that I don't want to live out of this place. This is my view of self. And from this place, being an object of God's wrath, I sort of kind of envision myself over here where I say one day, hopefully, in the resurrection or whenever, I'll be like this. Because I believe God, I trust God, that God will eventually do all these things that he has said. But that's not what he said. What he said is, I've done it to you over here. I've already done it to you. And then he goes on to say, now live like it. Now live like it. That's the rest of the book. Why do we need to believe? Elizabeth is coming in two weeks to talk about the rest of the chapter where Paul unpacks why. For now, I simply want to address what, what Paul has said about who we are in Christ. And ask the question, do we believe it? Do we believe it? That's the big question. Let me share with you what Martin Luther says and why I think this is so important. Martin Luther, in this paper that he wrote, 
quotes John 1, verse 12. To all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he goes on and quotes John chapter 6 and verse 29, where Jesus, in answer to the question from the crowd, what works does God require from us for righteousness? Jesus' response is this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. When Martin Luther says we are saved by faith and not by works, that is perhaps the most profound thing that has been said in the Christian church since Jesus stopped speaking. Because we got off track, we lost track of that. The church in in, in Martin Luther's time, the church was focused on people's sin and it was focused on how much they needed a savior. And it was drilling people down deeper and deeper and deeper into the despair of sin. And Martin Luther came along and said, wow, that's, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says something completely different. When Martin Luther says that we are saved by faith and not by works, what he's saying, and what he says in this, in this little paper, is that belief is what makes us a Christian and nothing else. And the danger with believing that somehow I don't necessarily have to believe, but I can actually just, I can sort of believe and instead just try to be a good person from this place. Try to be a better person from here. That's not Christianity. That's not what it is to be a Christ follower. To live in this place with a deep sense of my brokenness and and try to be a better person. That's not what we're called to. That's not what grace does. That's not what God has done. That's not what Jesus gave us. And that's not what it means to be united with Christ. To be united with Christ means to live over here. And the journey from there to here is one of belief. Of belief. Luther says this. What greater rebellion against God... What greater wickedness, what greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is truthful? That is to ascribe truthfulness to oneself, but lying and vanity to God. So the thing that separates us from God is unbelief. God says he's done it. But God, by grace, by grace. That's the word of God. To not believe it is to dishonor God. It is to dishonor God. It is to disobey God. To not believe it. Do we believe it? I struggle with believing it. I believe it up here. But I also understand that cognitive belief is not the same as belief that lives in my spirit and my soul. I have to move that belief from here to here. That's the journey that I've been on in the last little while is is wrestling with the word of God and the spirit of God and what God is saying and moving it from here to things that I can say, yeah, I get that, I understand that, yeah, I believe in that, but I actually live in a totally different place to moving it from here to here so that I begin to live out of that place where I believe it, where it is true. I write a blog every once in a while. I don't know if you ever, ever read it. I know a few people do. Ian Nichol is so faithful. He reads it, and, and I appreciate that, Ian. Thank you so much. But I wrote a blog a little while ago. I don't remember when it was, where I talked to the tree in my front yard. I don't know if you remember if anybody read that or not, but I did. We have a blue spruce that we planted a number of years ago, 
And as I was learning this, and I, as I was learning that, you know, you know if, if I really am united with Christ, and I really am right now seated in the heavenlies, right, and, and nature is subject to me as a child of God, I had this tree, I, we'd invested a lot in this tree, and I, I wanted this tree to, to, to do well, and so I spoke to the tree, and I said, you're created for God's glory. Grow up tall, grow up straight, be magnificent for God's glory, because that's who he made you to be. I kid you not, that tree shot up. Ask my wife. That tree is twice the size that it was. Now, a little while ago, I was really beginning to doubt this. I was really beginning to doubt this in many, many ways. And so I stopped speaking to my tree. And I went out there this fall, and our tree has some brown on it and, and looks a little unhealthy. So as I was getting ready for this message and knowing what I wanted to say, I went and I fertilized it and I took good care of it. And then yesterday I went out and I spoke to my tree again. And I said, I'll do everything I can to look after you. But remember, God made you for his glory. Grow big, grow magnificent, be glorious. I'll tell you next year how he's doing. <laughs> my point is this. In order for me to move this belief from my head to my heart, I have to act upon it. I have to act upon it. I have to bridge that divide, that gap of unbelief, by action. Faith without works is dead. If I want my faith to move from my head to my heart, I have to do something with it. And so I will continue to pray in faith for people who are sick even when they don't get healed, I'll go back to God and I'll say, I don't understand because I believe you heal and I believe that you've given us authority in heaven to ask for healing, and so we ask. And I will keep asking, even though I don't understand why it doesn't happen all the time. Because I want to live my life, the rest of my life, from this place. From this place. And as you're going to hear from Elizabeth in two weeks' time, that's not because this is all about me. It's because God has a purpose for my life and a plan for my life and I need to get on with it. And I can't fulfill it if I'm living over there. I won't have the power. I won't have the faith. I won't have the desire. I will always fall short. But not if I'm standing here. Not if I'm living from this place. I'll give you an example. This past week, one of my devotionals came from John chapter 16, verse 24. I read a chapter and I wait for God to speak to me and then I pray and journal about what God has said in that passage. And this, was, this is the passage that jumped out to me that day. Jesus talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and preparing his, his disciples for his, his time after he goes um, to the cross and beyond. And he says this, he says, In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And here's the thing that jumped out at me. What Jesus said to his disciples is he said, I don't have to talk to the Father for you. You can do that yourself. If you're united with me, I don't have to talk to the Father. I don't have to go to the Father on your behalf. You can do that yourself. That door is open. 
You're united with Christ. And, and, and when I read that and I looked at that and I said, Lord, there's something here. There's something momentous here. There's something huge here. I don't quite grasp it. I don't quite understand it. But I know I need to dwell here because you're saying something to me that could absolutely change my life and the way I look at you and the way I look at Jesus and the way I look at my calling. You see, what did Paul say in Romans? Romans, he said, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We study, we listen to the word of God so that it can move from here to here. And when we hear God speak through the word and it gets into our hearts and we act it out, we grow in faith and we grow in wisdom and stature with Christ. And we grow in our effectiveness as ambassadors and ministers of the kingdom of God. That's the way this works. And dear friends, anything less than that is not Christianity. It's not what we're called to. It's not what this letter is pointing out to us as followers of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. Let's kind of make an object lesson out of this for a few minutes before we transition to communion. So, Jeff, would you mind bringing up that other flip chart? So the question is, do we believe it? So let's start on this side of the equation. Think for a second. What are the voices inside your head saying if you're living from this place? Where you're, you, might, you might kind of cognitively give agreement to that. You understand that that's out there. But this is actually where you're living and what you're hearing, right? Is, is just what it is to be an object of wrath. So I want you just to shout out some things. What are, what are some things? Doubt. Doubt. Unworthy. What was the last one? Got, got shame. I missed it. I, keep, I hear Fad. I'm not sure that all fads are on this side, but a few are. A few are. Like, like wearing your pants down here is probably on this side. But I sh- No, I should not have said that. Forgive me. I am learning to stand over here. All right. What about this side? When God's speaking to us of who we are, what do we hear? Holy? Hope I got. Free, more. Accepted? Supported? Healed? All right, let's, let's, we could, I'm glad that we can keep going. I really am. That's awesome. That's awesome that we can keep going. But do you understand a bit of what it means to move from this idea of, of who we are in Christ? That we are in Christ, but we still have all this garbage, all this baggage, right? That we're carrying around with us. We're trying to kind of, we're waiting for the day when God will get rid of it for us. And maybe that's in the resurrection or whatever. But this is what, this is what we're, we're present with. This is, what we're, this is what's on our minds. And do we see how that saps the energy and the, and the life out of this, right? And even this doesn't go far enough. This is really good. It kind of shows us where where you and I are in our understanding of this. But there's no authority in this. There's no kingdom being spoken here. 
These are the things that you and I are exploring as a, as a people that God is leading us into. Why? Because, as verse 10 says, there are good works out there that he's calling us to. Kingdom-building works, life-changing works, community-changing works that you and I are not meant to do in our own strength. We're meant to do it in his with the authority that he's given us. We're not there yet in terms of our belief. We're still somewhere between here and here. But with God's help, we're going here. We're going here. How do I know that this is true? How do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what God has said is true? How can I give you today concrete proof, evidence, undeniable evidence that you can take home with you today to guarantee you in those moments of doubt when you walk out the door that what I've said today because it's based upon the word of God is 100% true. I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward with communion as we get ready for communion. This is how. It's because Jesus died on the cross. You can leave that I'll get rid of that in a sec. Yeah. It's because Jesus went to the cross and he took this one, this one. And he got rid of it. And he got rid of it. So if you are in Christ... When God looks at you, this is what he sees. This is who you are. This is who we are because of Jesus. And this is the truth. Believe it. And because he knew that we would struggle with belief, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, here, this is my body broken for you. Take it. Eat it. And then he took the cup and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it and he gave it and said, here, this is my blood, the new covenant. I am pledging myself to you. I have done this. I am doing this for you. Receive it. Here's the cup. Drink from it, all of you. And he gives us the bread and he gives us the cup because he gives us himself and he says, I have taken all of that garbage out of your life. I've taken it upon myself. I've taken it to the cross. It's gone. And now you are in Christ. You are alive with Christ. You reign with Christ. And you are born again in Christ. That's who we are. May we believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so powerful and wonderful. Thank you for it. As we have looked into your word and exercised our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit, please, please help us to move this from our heads to our hearts. You love us, Lord, and you want us to understand how deeply you love us. You loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Lord, to believe in Jesus is to believe that he has done all the things that he said he was done, all the things that he came to do, and that now because of our belief in him, because of our union with him, because of we are joined with him, we, we stand before you holy, without shame, righteous, beautiful, perfect, because everything that has marred us has been taken to Christ and taken away by him. Heavenly Father, we are your people, the people called by your name, the followers of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we take the bread and we take the cup. May this be a communion like no other. May we see and sense and and understand Jesus handing it to us and saying, take, eat, take, drink. Because this is who you are. Thank you, Father. There really aren't words. Bless our communion. Bless us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.